Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our Europe series, I am joined again by my friend Sebastian Eduardo Di Giovanni for our fourth conversation about Paolo Sorrentino, the eminent Italian and indeed European director of the 21st century. We have already talked about Sorrentino's latest movie produced by Netflix about Napoli, The Hand of God, and of course, his very famous La Grande Bellezza, The Great Beauty, the Oscar-winning movie now on its 10th anniversary. And we have also talked about his The Consequences of Love, one of the early movies, almost 20 years old now, a, a wonderful study of character and of the question of art and uh, it, its power to reveal the troubles in human nature. Something somewhat similar, but an, on an entirely different scale, is our subject today. Today we'll be talking about Il Divo, the god, uh, sometimes translated as the celebrity, out of, I suppose, shame, but the word just means the god. The only political movie Paolo Sorrentino made, a kind of biography of Giulio Andreotti, the great Italian uh, Christian Democrat politician, seven times prime minister, and uh, the defining figure of the First Republic period, 48, 94, more or less, experience of uh, Republican politics in modern Italy after World War II. This is the subject for our, our conversation, and we will try to go through it with Sebastian, who is an expert on these matters. We will try to go through all of the fascinating, unique, really, Italian politics of the last couple of generations. Now, uh, especially in the post-war period, democratic politics is supposed to be a guarantee of peace that eventually has turned into this promise of the end of history, the end of the Cold War, globalized politics, which seems to mean largely adjusting negotiations on trades and tariffs and making sure that everybody's wealthy in the globalized world. Italy is a different place, however. The movie uh, Il Divo is set in the early 90s, the last of the seven Andreotti governments, and it's it's full of the uh, horrors of the 80s and uh, 90s, uh, mafia trials, uh, a large number of assassinations, uh, dubious suicides, all sorts of strange business mafia, Frank Masonic Lodge, Secret Service conspiracy ideas. Italian politics is very, very different than uh, the sort of stuff that we are used to seeing on the BBC or uh, read about in the New York Times or whatnot. And in, in, in that way, it is also much more revealing of human nature. And uh, it is much more revealing, of course, about Italian character, the predicament of politics in Italy, and what gives, therefore, an artist like uh, Sorrentino uh, a subject. You can't have great art or a great artist without great subjects. It's, it's not about the petty stuff. It's about the fundamental human things. And so, uh, Sebastian, thank you very much for joining me. This is our fourth uh, Sorrentino talk. Uh, hopefully we'll have the chance to do a bunch more. But now we can talk politics. We can talk about Italy. We can talk about uh, the Democristiani. We can talk about all of the uh, fascinating and occasionally shocking things. How can it be that people are so uh, solemn on the one hand and on the other hand, full of scandal. How can it be that somebody ends up seven times prime minister and also ends his career defending himself in uh, on trial for everything from corruption to abetting murder? 
that you could say is the Italian dilemma of our times. It's it's the, the, the also the setting the stage for how Italian politics has been since the 90s. And you uh, are run, among other many things, uh, a, a very successful, great Instagram page on the Prima Repubblica, on all of these great, amazing politicians of the period uh, of the mid-century and the late century. So thanks for joining me. And uh, start us off with the discussion of Andreotti, of the film Il Divo, of the Prima Repubblica. Hi, Titus, and thank you for having me again. Yeah, I mean, I love Paolo Sorrentino, but I also love that particular place and time of Italian politics. So this episode is quite dear to my heart. And uh, you'll have to stop me talking this time because I could go on for hours because it combines... It combines yeah, movies and, and 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 politics and intrigue and all of that. And um, so where to start? Um, first of all, I have two minor corrections, but it's the Devo actually translates as the divine, the divinity, um, not God, because it comes from the Latin Divus, which was the title of Caesar. And uh, he had several names. Julian Andreotti had several nicknames, and his most famous one was, yeah, the divine. Uh, and the second one is actually, I don't know how familiar actually non-Italian audiences are because the movie didn't become a success, but it's actually Paolo Sorrentino's, um, he made two political movies, and one is Silvio Berlusconi's biography, biographical movie, actually, biopic. But... Um, as much as I love Paolo Sorrentino, I myself have to admit, uh, Loro, them, which is Paolo uh, Sorrentino's movies of Berlusconi, does not come near the, the, the absolute marvel and gem that is Il Divo. So let's get to it. <clears throat> Let me first give the political context. What happened is um, Italy has um, is famous for its unreliable governments and uh, politicians coming and going, but that's actually not quite true. I mean, it is true definitely ever since the Second Republic, which is the period from 1994, the end of the First Republic, till so Berlusconi, till today. We had indeed many governments. But on the surface, um, what appears is during the first 50 years, from, from 1947 till the first Berlusconi government in 94, yes, there were many different prime ministers, giving the illusion of unstable governments, but it was one party ruling, just, you know, just the prime minister changed. So it was the Christian Democrats that ruled over almost 50 years over Italy. And the dominus of this period was definitely Giulio Andreotti. Now, some might say, not, not technically true, there were Aldo Moro and Cosiga and, uh, you know, so many incredible politicians in the good and in the bad. The reason the Il Divo Giulio Andreotti is so popular, even in the public's imagination, is that he was not only a politician, he was a writer. He wrote novels, he wrote books about essays on politics. He was a comedian almost. You know, like a, the wit and humor he had was astounding. Uh, there was many shadows in his life. He was accused of being a member of the mafia. He was accused of uh, ordering the killing of people. So in Giulio Andreotti, in this seven-time prime minister, 20-something times a minister, one single person encapsulates the whole of Italian history from the Borgias 
to Julius Caesar, to modern apparatuses of uh, conspiracy and intelligence, like almost a spectra. But in order, what happened is this. 1948, we have the elections. The war is over. We lost the war, but somehow in the public, you know, in the Italian public imagination, we somehow won with the Allies because we're very good at jumping ship five minutes before the end. And uh, there's the first big elections. So the Italian Italy became a republic. I'm not sure how grateful I am about that, but let's not get into that whole kerfuffle. And we have our first free elections after 20 years of fascism and the monarchy. And the big problem is communism is taking over. In um, many parts of Europe, the, the ghost of communism, the specter of communism is shadowing over Italy. And uh, we will discover later in, in history, uh, but thanks also to massive funding of the American government, the CIA, et cetera, et cetera, complicated history, but the Christian Democrats overwhelmingly won, win the elections and they will have a solid rule until 1992, 93. So that's almost 50 years. Now, in this monolithic party, there are currents, uh, so factions. And while the first 10 to 20 years are kind of boring, but we do have the Italian economic miracle, um, the old guard made by Alcide de Gasperi that forms the, that's forming the first Christian Democrat governments, they're kind of great. Nothing exciting really happens. What starts happening is the second generation that these uh, politicians that were formed under the grand old man, and that's Giulio Andreotti. So Giulio Andreotti was the youngest secretary of a segretario politico of the party. Uh, he was the personal assistant almost of uh, Alcide de Gasperi, the first prime minister of Italy. And uh, Alcide de Gasperi, he was basically our George Washington, famously said of this young man, he was barely, I think barely 27 at the time, this kid is so capable in everything that he might become capable of everything of or anything. And God, that will turn out to be true. So the movie is actually said, though, going back quickly to the movie, is set at the end of this historical cycle. So 1992. Uh, as we know, the, the Berlin Wall fell down a few years early. And what this causes all over Europe, of course, but especially in Italy, because Italy, it's right in between the East and the West, and it has the Vatican, it has American bases. And so it's, it's a very strategic place for, uh, for the Atlantic Treaty, you know, NATO and the Americana sphere. The, the, the fear of, of communism does not exist anymore. So at this point, what happens is um, there is no, we, we call it, there's no, tax needed to be paid for democracy or um it was it was it was like as if uh um an, an entire system started showing the cracks but of a of a disease that we know what was was happening under our very eyes meaning there were bribes unfortunately this is how things worked there were bribes involved the problem was they became arrogant bribes. It, at one point in the last year of the, in the first years of the 90s, 
the corrupt system became so evident and uh, the hubris of the politician, the tinocracy of the Socialist Party and some mm, Christian Democrats became so blatant that the whole system started collapsing and then judges and magistrates started going after what turned to be one tiny bribe in Milan became this massive, they unveiled this massive system of corruption. And yeah, an entire political system of 50 years just collapsed because of this. Now, interesting enough, Giulio Andreotti was never touched by this investigation. His problems will start later for mafia. So the movie that starts, uh, begins, I think, in 1992, Giulio Andreotti was just nominated for the seventh time prime minister. And you can start perceiving and sensing that a world was coming to an end. Um, what 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 the movie basically is about is the last years of of this political system and a man that is torn apart between uh, a world that he doesn't recognize anymore and and his past basically. Now Paolo Sorrentino, I don't know how he did it, but he managed to make a movie about one of the greyest and almost boring people on earth, a politician, and turn it into a rock and roll movie. And uh, this is this is amazing. You could watch this movie over and over again, and it never bores you. Now, um, Giulio Andreotti was famously surrounded, unfortunately, as you have in politics, you know, with colonels. Now, it was on the colonels that there were many doubts before even on, on, on Giulio. So the movie begins almost with an... Uh, it, almost begins the first it's not the first scene but it's very early on in the movie with an a very famous assassination salvatore lima his lieutenant in sicily got shot by the mafia so this was a direct message on the prime minister the reason he was shot is because the christian democratic party did not keep the promises alleged promises to the mafia meaning they did not stop what is known in Italy as the Maxi Processo. Let's quickly go back a few years. In the late 80s, two incredible judges, probably the best judges we ever had, courageous, uh, Paolo Borsellino and Giovanni Falcone, did what is known as uh, the Maxi trial of the mafia. So the mafia went basically unpunished in Italy for their entire existence, minor cases here and there. What these two magistrates achieved is historic. They they put on the trial the whole of Cosa Nostra, thanks to the help of uh, un pentito, uh, un pen, pentito di mafia. That's someone who regretted uh, joining the mafia. They had, uh, if you confessed being a part of it, you had advantages in the judicial system in Italy. The most famous one is Tommaso Buscetta, who started spilling the beans. He was a, what we almost would call today a whistleblower of the mafia. And he starts describing for the first time the Masonic system almost that rules the mafia. That's how the mafia works. We had no idea. People have to understand in Italy until very recently, the mafia was almost considered, yeah, some, like, yeah, it's a, the papers invented the mafia or it's something, it's a fiction. It's only in novels. I swear to God, we had no idea the public, the general public at least, had no idea the mafia even existed. So Tommaso Buscetta comes into the system, 
and just spills the beans. He he's he's like a top boss, but he was uh, he was arrested in America, where he was uh, hiding because the mafia itself had its own private war in the late seventies and, and early eighties. So he fled to South America. He got arrested there, and in hatred of the new mafia that, according to him, has no honor because he was a member of the old guard, he starts spilling the beans and describes to the magistrates what the mafia is about. But the big question is, did you have political allies? And he never mentioned openly Il Divo, Giulio Andreotti, but many people around him and in the party. So this is the back set of this movie, uh, Giulio Andreotti's life. Now, Giulio has also been involved in, while never, he was never touched by the, the, the accusation of bribes, later he was also um, charged uh, with the assassination or the order of assassination of Mino Pecorelli, a famous Italian journalist that apparently what, what the judges claim uh, was about to publish some very controversial documents about the then prime minister which would have involved him in, 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 in heavy bribes. But Mino Pecorelli got killed by probably La Banda della Magliana, which is a, the Roman mafia basically at the time. And one of these members of these gangsters uh, said, uh, <clears throat> stated quite openly that the mandate to kill came from the very top, meaning Giulio Andreotti. Now, Giulio Andreotti was, was claimed uh, not guilty of this particular accusation, but yeah, the sentence is quite dubious. Now, I am a fan, not really of the Divo, but of, that, of the entire period, because it's the last time in Italy where we had real politicians. They were connected to the people and, and, and the territory. Politics had still on, on, on the upper hand on economics. We were almost, almost a sovereign country, not in servitude of the United States. With, with I'm, I'm a big fan of the United States, of what they used to stand for. But I have to say, uh, especially recently, sometimes the United States forgets there are other sovereign countries. And Bettino Craxi, the prime minister of the Socialist Party, the only time someone that was not a Christian Democrat came to power, there was this famous incident that became historic in, in, in our eyes, where basically the Americans, they have a base in Sicily and uh, they really wanted this a terrorist and they get him and they, and, 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 and they land in, in Sicily on their base, but we are sovereign in theory. So there's this very famous image that you can find on Google with the Carabinieri surrounding the Marines who, you know, pointing their guns, the Marines, who themselves are around this uh, hijacked airplane where this terrorist was hiding. Anyway, fascinating story. Look it up. The Sigonella crisis. In one way or the other, we were still sovereign, monetarily, politically. We had our room in uh, in the scene. And it's not, it's not a coincidence that with the decay of the political class of recent times everywhere in the world, we are a colony again. But we don't know of whom anymore. Yes, the United States are very important, but sometimes China interferes. Sometimes you know, Russia now apparently with the previous government was very strong. Back in the day, until until the year nineties, uh, 
you know, we had many troubles. Bribe, corruption was a big one. But at least we were ruled by a class of politicians that were formed under the rubbles of the first, Second World War. So they had something in them. Perhaps they remembered what happens when, 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 when we forget how precious democracy and freedom is, how easy it is to lose. So they still were anchored to certain values. And nowadays, I don't think that's the case. We're too spoiled and... Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very good way of putting it. You, you've already described the major issues in the two halves of the movie. In the first half of the movie, we see the end of Androtti's political career, his last government, his failed attempts to become president of the Republic, and the dissolution of his uh, power in the Christian Democrat Party. And in the second half, the political drama turns into a court drama. All of the accusations, the trial uh, where he has to defend himself at the end of his career, and uh, he defends himself successfully. They're, they're, you know, very complicated issue, but uh, he uh, he didn't just stay out of jail. He was, broadly speaking, uh, acquitted of the various charges brought against him. And so he he's very he's a very good. Uh, not not symbol, but example of Italian politics, right? He, he doesn't play a role. He is not a model modeling a role. He's a real man who really did uh, sit at the center of Italian politics for the, about 50 years. As you were saying, when he was a very young man, he was uh, more or less the right hand of the founder of Christian democracy, the Gasperi. So uh, Androtti was there throughout the whole period from the 40s through the 90s. It was Italian politics, and uh, it would not have worked without him. You wonder what else might have happened. But uh, it would not have been anything like the Italy in which, say, Sorrentino was born and raised. Uh, the, uh, after all, the, 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 the new Italy, the Second Republic, after 94, the era of Berlusconi, Sorrentino was already an adult by that point. Uh, right. So you could say that he's lived his life in two different regimes. And uh, the movie has two different halves that deal with these political and legal issues that you mention. And uh, I think you, you, you also get that this very important other matter that uh, Androtti is so important because Italians believed in Italy. And that's what he symbolized. Aside from his political career and his power, he was a symbol of uh, how Italy is run by Italians in a distinctly Italian way with distinctly Italian purposes as opposed to, say, being an outpost of NATO and uh, the American Empire or a province of the EU and the German Economic Empire, or, or however one wants to put it, or a, a, a part of a global arrangement economically for energy, etc., between China and America, and so on. And therefore, it's uh, the movie also serves as a political education for the harsh realities of political office, the harsh realities of organization, uh, the harsh realities of uh, spending your life every day. Uh, every day, uh, Giulio Il Divo wakes up before dawn, uh, right? Uh, he, he has to stay up to midnight. Uh, politics is not a job, it is a life. It is life. Uh, uh, for ordinary people to go about their private life, some people have to not. And, uh, and that means that uh, in, in a strange way, 
the people who know most and are most involved in the major issues in our lives become a kind of secret, a mystery figure. I think this is how so, this is what Sorrentino is trying to get at in, as you were saying, turning the whole political drama into something of uh, an American Hollywood blockbuster production. You have uh, montages to music, uh, a la Scorsese, about assassination, suicides, and all of this drama. But you also have the montage where you, uh, you see Andreotti's uh, various political operators within the party and parliament and so on and so forth, uh, his team. Uh, the team assembly montage. And so with any number of other parts of the movie, he makes Andreotti seem at times a, a criminal mounting a heist. He makes him seem like this semi-mythical figure, like a mafioso who has an inner circle and who is involved in all sorts of secrets. And all of these ways are somewhat ironic ways of showing that we really do not know what happens in politics that you can see some things in the papers and you see some things on TV, and that's more or less what you go by, except, of course, the endless rumor-mongering and the endless conspiracy theorizing that makes life in Italy never dull, never a dull moment. <laughs> but, no, it, but it's not a knowledge of politics. Indeed, uh, about uh, this movie, Sorrentino says in an interview that when you want to write a story about the highest levels of power, about Andreotti himself, you realize quickly enough that what you're doing is science fiction. Nobody has any idea what it's like there. Uh, the people who uh, do that, who do that sort of work, who live the political life as Andreotti did for more than fifty years, they don't, they don't talk about it, and in a way, they can't talk about it because there are so many rumors, there are so many reputations on the line. There is everything to lose, and you couldn't even explain it to people because ordinary people are not involved. They don't know. It is the case that politics is the biggest secret in our world, and uh, and then to some extent it's been replaced, as you were suggesting, by economics, because economics is easier to figure out, in a sense. There are way more millionaires and even billionaires than there are core political figures that help run a country for 50 years. There's only one Andreotti, and there are a couple of other people. Uh, you know, you could say there are 10 men of great importance in politics, but uh, in economics, there's going to be more than that. In economics, is going to be more public in a certain way because all the buying and selling and the conglomerations and the so on and so forth are easier to track publicly than it is to say on what trust and on what beliefs do a few men run a party for 50 years. That's somehow harder to say. You do not have access to that inner circle. And this is why Sorrentino has to concoct this uh, incredibly dramatic, very uh, interesting movie, the cinematography, the music, the montages, uh, but also the long, silent uh, scenes with Andreotti going for a walk at night, Andreotti going to confession, Andreotti in, in involving himself in the life of an Italian who has somehow the burden of the nation and of its history on his conscience. You know, one of the Andreotti witticisms is that he has been blamed for everything except the Carthaginian Wars because he was too young for that. Uh, and in a sense, that's true. If you are that powerful, the whole burden of the nation's history for the while that you are a politician uh, is on your shoulders. That uh, what you're going to deal with is not just your prime minister or your minister of the interior or what have you. You're going to deal with the fact that Italians, indeed the people, invest their hopes and also their blame in you. You are going to have to deal with all of that. 
And it is a very unusual, and it's a unique burden to bear. Since we no longer have real classes of politicians, it has become very difficult even to explain to people what kind of man it takes to do this. Uh, and so Sorrentino uh, doesn't just give us an entry into the life of politics and Andreotti in this somewhat uh, ironic, very artistic, very uh, postmodern uh, way, but, but his postmodernism is also in a certain sense very conservative and even reactionary. You see, so, uh, Sorrentino shows you Andreotti uh, meeting with his voters. He has been elected once last time, and the voters come in and they bear gifts. It's an incredibly pre-modern, even feudal uh, ritual. Uh, somebody comes and brings him as a gift, a big, big white rabbit. Uh, obviously, people don't know anymore, but rabbit is delicious. This is an important part, <laughs> at least, say, of Roman uh, cuisine as well, Conilione. But also, it's uh, it's Andreotti himself giving money to old people who are in the voters. They are the clients, okay? He is the patron. It goes back to ancient Roman buying votes. It is a necessary part of taking care of society. It sounds shocking to modern political liberalism. And I'm not against modern political liberalism. But Sorrentino shows you there's more to politics than that. There's more to Italy than what you see on TV about how the campaign works and the uh, events and speeches, rallies, and eventually counting the votes. There are other sides to it. Sorrentino also has the chance to show you an Andreotti who is a full political figure, who deals with all of the aspects involved. Some of them are uh, distinctly or even shockingly pre-modern aspects of politics. But they reveal to you why people believe in a politician. Why politics cannot be essentially transactional, why it's not economics. And of course, why it cannot be the, the most beautiful vision of economics, which is a win-win situation. Politics in the best of times is a zero-sum game. Every honor that Andreotti wins is an honor that somebody else loses. When Andreotti finally loses his last government and fails to become a president, it's because somebody else won those honors. Honors are in the best situation, zero-sum. Everything I win, somebody else loses. That is part of the competition and the harshness that very few people accept, but politicians at a high level must accept it. And so uh, Sorrentino shows the, that Andreotti, for all of his taciturnity and for all of his ironic wit, is fully aware of the burden he bears, is somehow in a way suffering for his country by leading his country. Uh, it may sound crazy, but uh, at some point his uh, priest tells him, uh, your allies are horrible people. <laughs> and uh, he says, well, you know, that's what you have to do. You cannot run a country uh, on, on the basis of your wishes, even your most pious wishes. You can only run a country on the basis of the country itself. And in the case of Italy, this meant a lot of very dubious people. And it also meant, therefore, that the political regime was never going to last forever. The, in a way, the shocking thing is that it lasted so long. But again, look at Andreotti, a man who made it into his 90s or so. Indeed, he was old enough to see this movie when it came out. But, you know, Andreotti, that, that is to say, has lived through a bunch of regimes. Uh, it's not just that Italy outlived him, but he outlived a, a bunch of regimes in Italy himself. It, it's a miracle that yeah. he was part of a way of arranging politics among the parties that lasted for so long. And uh, again, since uh, you mentioned very interesting, always spectacular and very, very dubious socialist prime minister, Bettino Craxi, he ended up in exile. There's another sign of ancient politics, if you will. Uh, chased for corruption, he ran from Italy. This is, you know, all sorts of drama in Craxi's life, not just a standoff with uh, Americans, although that was also amazing. Andreotti 
not only was a more powerful politician for longer, but he survived even this drama. And that's another important part of politics. Sorrentino shows us Andreotti at the end of his career, that is, in a way, the moment when uh, the public pronounces a judgment on him. It's no longer the case that Italy can invest hopes in Andreotti. He's a very old man, and that entire regime has fallen apart, which he led, and uh, he, he does not have a future. His reputation has a future, and a certain vision of Italy is now in discussion, what kind of future it has. I think Sorrentino shows a lot of sympathy for not just the burden Andreotti bore and for the realism with which he dealt with Italy's difficulties, but for seriousness about politics in general, for men who dedicate themselves to that as opposed to uh, whatever other charms there are in life, obviously. There are other avenues to fame and celebrity or to wealth or even just modest prosperity. Politics is unique partly because... uh, Uh, We we don't care about it as much as we should, as much as we used to. And Sorrentino seems to think uh, it would be better if we knew. It it would be better if we admired and were also worried and even fearful of what men like Andreotti show us. Compared to that, a a sort of uh, arrogant indifference or kind of contempt for politics is not just unmanly, but it is very, very silly. It's childish. Uh, Andreotti was a great politician. It takes a great artist to to look at the career of a great politician because both of them have this much in common. Their major concern, you could say, is the audience, that is the electorate, that is the people, and therefore posterity, The, the question of what happens after you're dead, uh, the question of what comes of all the things you believed in, and whether there is anything in human affairs that will survive, you can see that in the nicknames. Andreotti almost brags about his various nicknames. Mostly, uh, they are, of course, dark suggestions that he is in league with the devil. But, uh, but even that shows that he has become a symbol, that he has a power beyond that of a mortal man. He's not just an old guy who is a hunchback and, and, and who has been plagued all his life by horrible headaches. And he's not just, as he says repeatedly, the guy whose death was predicted many, many times and who survived all the people who predicted his demise. He is somehow associated with, uh, since he's called Giulio, indeed, uh, I think it was Pecorelli, the journalist who gave him the nickname, Il Divo, after Julius Caesar, who himself had an apotheosis. And so I think you could say, at least in a preliminary way, uh, the movie is the ironic apotheosis of this uh, Andreotti who now becomes Il Divo. Once you see him through Sorrentino's eyes, it's no longer a matter of did you vote for him? Were you on the democratic Christian side? Are you on the other side? Uh, Are you more for that republic or the one that succeeded it? But you see him that he somehow embodied Italy, that he was uh, Italy for 50 years and could say that uh, it's not just that the history books will be about him, but without him, why would we have history books in the first place? It's, it's that important. Yeah, I agree with everything you say. But also what I think it is so great about this movie, Sorrentino, while he shows you all the facts that are undeniable, all his charges, all the doubts, all the suspicions of being involved with mafia and corruption, but he also tries you to make you understand the possible reasons for such a shadowy personality. La raison d'état, the French would say, that drove Andreotti. Most people tend to forget politicians are actual people and they have their own personal background, history, and then they carry that of the nation. So let's take Julius Andreotti's case. 
this is a fascinating man on his own right from his personal history. He loses his father when he was really young. And th this episode I'm about to tell is quoted in the movie. When he was um, doing a medical examination to join the army, because you had to, he was told by the doctor, oh, you only have six months to live. First of all, you're very frail. His, his body was very frail. He was a hunchback. You lose your father when you were really young. And then when, you're eight, when you turn 18, they also tell you, listen, you've got six months to live. So I think this, this instills an instinct of survival. Fast forward, he's 27. Now, he's the right arm of this great man, Alcide de Gasperi, and he has all the secrets, Alcide. Now, once Alcide dies, what might have happened is you just inherit all sorts of secrets and problems that you don't know. And this applies to Giulio Andreotti, like for any other politician, like I'm sure Giorgio Meloni right now, once he got to power, realized, oh my God, I had no idea how the inner workings of politics actually work. So here's a 27-year-old young man but one point perhaps realizes, oh, first of all, we're not sovereign, really, because we signed all sorts of shady deals with the mafia. We had to. It was 1946-7, Operation Husky. We needed the help of the mafia to free Italy. So the Americans did what we know. But, you know, once you're on the ticket of the mob, it's not a cab ride that you just, you know, pay the ticket and that's it. No, you stay in the cab forever. Eventually, someone is, must have told me, okay, listen, official history, uh, it's not really how it went. Uh, we have to deal with certain issues. The biggest one of which is we had to ask the devil for help back in the day to win the war or to be freed of fascism. Then you have got the whole problem of the alliances with America. But, you, you know, we also had Arab nations. We are a Mediterranean country. So we had to keep an eye on the whole of the Mediterranean as well. But then we also had the communists right behind us in Northern Europe and we had Germany. So all these interests conflicting, sometimes coinciding and, and it was the, you know, the Cold War. Now Androtti had to deal with all this and it becomes to the, it gets to the ultimate question, does politics corrupt or is it, is it that politics is susceptible to the corruptible? Now, let's add another layer, important layer, the Vatican. Cosiga, uh, long-life friend, colleague of Giulio Andreotti, he used to joke that Andreotti is um, a minister of the Vatican, kindly borrowed to the Republic of Italy. Uh, Andreotti was friends with all of the popes, all the way to, he, you know, he met Bergoglio. He wasn't pope yet, but Cardinal Bergoglio. So... He's been, uh, let's say, bred in, in, in that atmosphere. Actually, he met future Prime Minister Alcide de Gasperi while working into Vatican Library because de Gasperi was hiding, not hiding from the fascists, but everyone knew he was there, but he, he was exiled in Vatican State. How do you reconcile all these things? We know he went to church at 6 a.m. every day. Every day he went to Mass. But we also know as a fact he might have had to make very hard choices and he had to be real cynic, real politic with the mafia, for example. We know is a, a certain fact that he met with mafia bosses. Now, we don't know what they said to each other. So how do you reconcile the, 
he believed for sure in God and he definitely was a good Christian, but also he had to deal with the dark side that we don't want to face about each other as a nation um, and history. One one thing I believe, but this is me going on a, on a, on a, on a hunch here, it's pure speculation, but you know, those times, in those times, psychology and psychiatry weren't really big. You didn't, you know, it's not like today where everyone goes to the psychologist at 16. If one observes Andreotti's life and what he says and what he writes, I think in the whole, you mentioned uh, big problems with migraines. In hindsight, I think Julian Andreotti was trying to give every indication, albeit unconscious, that he was conflicted in nature, in his own nature, almost schizophrenic or bipolar. I'll make you one example. He was famously, he famously loved movies, but there was one movie in particular that he adored and he watched it up to two times a day when possible. And that movie is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He was fascinated by the contradictions in one man between the fight between good and evil. Hint number one, the unconscious perhaps trying to explain it to himself. Some, there's two conflicting natures in one man. Now, one of his most famous novels, because he was a novelist as well, is Il Buono Cattivo, literally translated as the good bad man. Uh, it's untranslatable. But again, pointing out that, that, that good and evil in one person you know, are fighting. And then one of his most famous aphorisms, Il male dei, dei, dei buoni è pericolosissimo. So um, evil acts done by good people is very, very dangerous. So over and over again, over the years, Andreotti, I think, is trying to possibly explain to himself that, he's, that there's a contradiction in nature in him. He wants to do the good. And we know he didn't enrich himself personally. It's not like we know Bettino Craxi made a lot of money in, in, in bribes, or at least if not him, his whole party. Giulio Andreotti was a very modest man and, 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 and never flaunted any riches. And so he didn't do this for its own personal economic gain. Perhaps he fell in love with power. One of the, one other aphorism is il potere logo ra chi non ce l'ha. Power corrodes those who don't do not possess it, which is a line actually that uh, Francis Ford Coppola used in The Godfather 3, where he combined in one character in the movie Godfather 3, actually two people, if not three, Lucchese. He's actually Licio Gelli, the head of the Masonic Lodge P2, Andreotti in one in, in one character, but he says in the movie Power, it's the last thing the right-hand man of Michael Corleone says before he kills him with his own glasses. Power uh, corrodes those who don't have it. So Giulio Andreotti might have been just someone who had to re reconcile so many interests, both inside of himself and for his country, that is very hard to read. Now, Paolo Sorrentino wrote one of the most incredible, in my opinion, monologues in movie history. And it's the monologue that you can see in the movie where Andreotti confesses to himself and condenses his entire life in one monologue. But the gist of it is people have no idea how much evil needs to be done in order to pursue greater good. This God knows, and so do I. I'm paraphrasing the, the, the actual monologue is far more interesting and exciting and better spoken, but, but this is the problem with Giulio Andreotti. 
he might have been a very conflicted person in and on its own who had to deal with very the most complicated 50 years of Italian politics. And then what happened is he lost his reason for existing. And it happened paradoxically when he was nominated senator for life by his friend uh, Francesco Cossiga, who was then president of the Republic. Once he was nominated senator for life, yes, he was still a politician, but with no cachet, like he didn't have to convince people anymore or his own uh, electorate. That was it. He was done for life, you know. And that's when you start, even in footage, you can really start seeing him aging all of a sudden. It's like when people go in, in uh, when they retire, you could tell right away they start aging suddenly. Now, this happened perhaps ideally for him, although he didn't know it back then, because the world started changing the year later. That's 92, 93, 94. Um, I, I don't think Julian Androtti would have survived anyway because he was not a media person. I mean, can you imagine Julian Androtti on constantly on iPhones, on Instagram, on TikTok? Do, you know, that's when politics started being spectacularized. He was a man of the old guard. Was, I think there's one picture of him with a cell phone, this big cell phones, and it's weird to look at. So again, he was a man of his time and he would not have survived this mediaization of politics. And no, it's no coincidence that Silvio Berlusconi would inherit his electorate, not his one personal, but the Christian Democrat electorate that was orphaned after Mani Pulita. And uh, with Silvio Berlusconi, we'll sh we shall have the spectacularization of politics that Bettino Craxi would initiate, and he took it to new levels. But that whole generation, Aldo Moro, uh, Giulio Andreotti, Francesco Cossiga, all that generation would have not survived. The constant dictatorship of omnipresence in media and social media later. Uh, they were very good in camera. Giulio Andreotti actually was not shy in front of the camera. He was actually super witty and hilarious, but, but it was another generation. And just look at them. Their suits were terrible. Their whole... A spin doctor would, you know, put his hand in his hair and say, oh, my God, how are we going to spin that? So they would have not have been at ease. But to go back to the original question, does politics corrupt or is it just that it's susceptible to the corruptible? Or I would add a third option. Do some people just enter politics by destiny and then they found out later that you actually have very little maneuvering abilities because you're constrained by the situation inside your country, the one outside your country, secret intrigues that you had no idea about and and all of that, you know. And then, you know, the big part of the movie is in background, we have the kidnapping of another colleague and friend of Aldo, of Julian Drotti, which is Aldo Moro. So quickly to summarize, the Red Brigades kidnap uh, the secretary of the Democratic Party. So Julian Drotti, although a prominent figure in the Christian Democrat Party was never the secretary of the party. So he was never the head of the party. He always uh, kept himself far away from that role. Aldo Moro, in his uh, 50 plus days of captivity, wrote letters addressed to all members of his party. And in those letters, a very different Giulio Andreotti comes into light. And he minces no words about his gray history, as he says. Now, some say he was under duress. Some say he was forced to write those things. But we have reason to believe he actually gave a portrait 
of an Andreotti that the public did not know. The public only knew the super cunning, super witty, yes, with some shadows here and there, Giulio Andreotti. But a friend, a long life friend and colleague like Aldo Moro, he would actually know probably the inner workings of that man's mind and actions. So which which Giulio Andreotti to believe? I think both. I think Paolo Sorrentino manages brilliantly to lay out all the facts. There's no doubt he was involved in mafia dealings, but there's also no doubt he tried to do the best for his own country. And then the second question is, okay, but was he involved in mafia dealings because he was dealt at that hand? There's, there, there, there was nothing he could really do, just try to appease them and contain damage, you know? I mean, what would you do? You know, you, 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 we have this naivety about politics today. Oh, the government would never lie to us. Oh, no, they would never do secret deal. Of course they do. They've been doing this since the Roman Empire. There's the politics behind the scenes, which we're not supposed to know. And then there's the official politics of handshakes and the European Union being always wonderful. Just to name one, I mean, you know, it's the same thing with America or Germany. And then there's, you know, realpolitik. And you don't want to know how that one works because our conscience could not tolerate it. You know, there's that, there's that great line of, of Jack Nicholson when he's a general in a movie with Tom Cruise. Uh, what's the English title? Uh, ah, it's, a Few Good Men. A Few Good Men. Great movie. The truth. You can handle the truth. You can apply this to all of politics, really. There's some things our conscience... And that's why, incidentally, they keep postponing the releasing of secret documents, Sinadia. Look what's happening with the Kennedy assassination. Whether you believe in, in, in the official version or not, just release the goddamn files. No, they've been postponed again. The same thing happens with Italian secret documents. For reason of security, state security, they've been postponed again. Because... The end of World War II and the Cold War seems distant now, but it's actually so close still to us. Giulio Andreotti encapsulated every single virtue and vice of the Italian zeitgeist and, and, and collective unconscious. It's, it's, every Italian is a bit Gianni Agnelli or would love to be a little bit of Gianni Agnelli, a little bit of Giulio Andreotti and Machiavelli, and a little bit of St. Paul and Peter. We, we are this weird mix of vices and virtues. And every once in a while, someone incarnates them. But at least, you know, what I'm saying is, at least they stood for something, in the good or the bad. The problem with today, there's no such figure. Not even, I sometimes joke around, not even the mafia is, is what it used to be. You know, a few months back, we arrested the last high-ranking boss of the mafia, Matteo Messina Denaro. Imagine, it's it's like, it, it couldn't get any bigger. He was he escaped justice for 30 years. He knows all the secrets. You know what we know about him after months of interrogation? Nothing. He didn't say a word. All we know is his love affairs, his reading habits. And it, it's so banal. If you read the transcriptions, not even the, the bad guys are what it used to be. I'd rather much live back in a world where good and evil, East and West, communism, capitalism, they faced each other plainly. Yes, red brigades. Yes, we've got fascists. Yes, we've got... But at least we've got honest enemies. Now it's just money. It's just 
big international interests that no one cares about and they influence our life and no one and no one is fighting them yeah i think uh, sorrentino to a, to a large extent shares this uh, deprecation of our situation a situation of confusion a situation where people can't even recognize what's important what's worth fighting for and therefore uh, how even to think about the necessities of politics and the, the, dis- the distinction between necessity and justice and uh, therefore what makes great men great Uh, as you say, uh, Sorrentino shows that uh, Andreotti did face the necessities. He he did not run a country as he would have chose to, uh, as, as he would have chosen to, and the country is not what the country wanted itself to be. But uh, he had to deal with that. Uh, many historical accidents, many things that come out of uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the confrontations of World War II and then the Cold War simply had to be accepted as necessities. And the result of that was, you could say, it's it's the result there's always, it's the result that politics always faces us with. There's a time ticking on every arrangement. However smart the politicians, however quick to act and however farsighted, there's always a clock ticking and their political arrangements, their political party, like the Christian Democrats, uh, ruled Italy for half a century and then in 1940 disappeared completely. The whole party disappeared. And with the party, of course, that was the end of that republic. The In a way, since you see the confusion since 1994, you can see how important uh, Andreotti and the Christian Democrats were. They gave Italy its structure and its order. It's not just there. It's not something you can take for granted when you criticize politicians because they provide that order. Indeed, in one of the lovely moments uh, in the of dialogue in the movie a journalist mocks andreotti's solemnity and you know in a way mocks his uh, piety uh, as a christian as well uh, accusing him of all of these associations with uh, dark deeds and terrible men and andreotti looks at him and actually doesn't even look at him as he often doesn't and says but your paper only exists because i saved it when i was prime minister Your liberty to speak was provided by politicians. It's not just there. It doesn't take care of itself. And it could disappear if the regime disappears. The situation was a bit more complex, the journalist says. And Andreotti says, well, you're a smart man and you figured it out on your own. The same thing applies to my story. It's a little bit more complex. Exactly. Uh, uh, Freedom in politics always is in the context of necessity. Uh, from the simplest things like you need to eat, you need shelter, to more complicated things like you need to face the realities of the Cold War. Uh, You need to face the realities of international finance. Would you like another world? There isn't another world. This is the world in which you have to act. Your actions are going to be faced with consequences, and uh, those consequences, like the conditions in which you act, are not for you to choose or determine. You have to deal with all of these things. That's what makes people serious. It is precisely the difficulty of acting that makes noblemen noble. It is how hard it is to keep a regime going. It makes a great politician great. And so it's not that uh, Sorrentino wants to raise Andreotti above criticism. You could say he wants to prepare a serious criticism, a criticism based on acceptance of all of the complicated, troubling divisions in Italy, part of which, of course, are external and part of which are historical rather than the sorts of things people vote on in uh, any given election. That would mean also coming uh, to to understand themselves. Italians should uh, watch this movie to understand themselves, but also other people. What Sorrentino reveals in the particulars 
of uh, Italy could also be revealed about other countries. If somebody made a movie about Konrad Adenauer or about, or about Charles de Gaulle, yeah. they would have to face these problems. If somebody made a movie about FDR or Eisenhower, they would have to face these problems. Uh, the situation is never perfect and the people who deal with it must inevitably become to some extent complicated, as Andreotti says. That is to say, they have to make compromises with people they don't like or things they don't approve of. As, uh, the church would put it very wittily uh, when he was asked about um, the, 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 the alliance with Stalin. He said, well, if Hitler declared war on the devil, I would give a word for the devil in the House of Commons. You would have to say something in favor. But there are always uh, consequences for that. You make a, a deal with the mafia. Like, of course, the American army also made a deal with the mafia in Sicily and brought American mafiosi back to Sicily, like Lato Luciano, to make sure that they would have some control over what's happening in a chaotic situation. The American army does not speak Italian. They don't understand Sicily. And what are you going to do while you're busy fighting the German army? Not an easy thing to do, by the way, by all accounts. Uh, who's going to deal with the society? What are some of the societies, the black market, and is going to be dealt with by mafiosi? You have to deal with that. You have to accept the, the all the suffering that comes. And uh, that's, that's the stuff that at the beginning of the movie makes Andreotti seem senile. Just this guy with an impassive face who doesn't say much and speaks in the monotone that uh, is part of Tony Servilio's specialty as an actor. Uh, it is only by all the drama, it is only by all the memories, it is only by all of the suffering of Italy that you begin to see why Andreotti looks the way he looks and acts the way he acts. Uh, you could say that the country has enough drama without him adding to it his self-control is uh, part of his gift to Italy, you could say. There's this great moment in which the only politician shown to betray him, the, the shark, the squalo, uh, you know, has just uh, helped destroy uh, uh, Andreotti's claim for the presidency. He loses the, the vote in the uh, legislature uh, in a shocking way. And still, the, the man who helps destroy him and who betrayed him tells his friends, look at him. This is how a man conducts himself. This is dignity. Learn. This is what it means to be a serious man. It's uh, it's sort of like Mark Antony's tribute to Brutus in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Mark Antony believes he had to destroy Brutus, but he still believes he was an honorable man. There was greatness in him. Uh, that's And that is, uh, as you were suggesting, something that we have lost. The ability to confront your adversaries, to want to defeat them for the sake of the common good, and yet to recognize they have nobility in them, that they stand for something worth standing for. And in, indeed, in a way, it's like the, this early, early 90s Leonard Cohen song called The Future, in which he says, give me Stalin and St. Paul. I would rather have a serious confrontation between scientific atheism and uh, religion and Christianity preached by St. Paul than to have the uh, endless Instagram and TikTok world. And so uh, it, it is in this new context, uh, the context of Berlusconi, with, if you will, the weapons of Berlusconi. Il Divo is the kind of movie where you have rock music, you have cool montages, you have all the tools of modern cinema. Uh, sometimes it looks like music videos. Sometimes it looks like uh, um, uh, you know, ads, uh, political ads or advertising ads, with all of these new odd tools of popularism, uh, of the democracy that is so demotic that it makes the mid-century uh, democratic Christians look like aristocrats. Looks, they, they make them look like ancient Roman senators. 
with all of these new tools, Sorrentino wants to show the dignity of that old situation because they face problems that people now uh, cannot even tolerate hearing about, much less uh, try to deal with. Mm. I remember speaking of how much how much more three-dimensional politicians were. At the time, Paolo Sorrentino was asked in one of the Q&As why he chose to make a movie about Guido Andreotti, because believe me, it's not. it wasn't easy. It wouldn't be easy today. It wasn't easy back then. He was still alive, and it took guts. But in typical Sorrentino fashion, he gave such a Sorrentino answer. So he said, well, I, I started becoming fascinated by Giulio Andreotti because I read somewhere that when talking, when listening to other people talking, he always closed his eyes the entire time. And a man who can stand with his eyes closed listening to a question is capable of anything. And it's true, if you watch Giulio uh, Andreotti in his interviews, he always closes his eyes, you know, like 80s glasses. And um, whether he was conscious of it or not, but people deciphered it, they were always told to look at his hands, how he fiddled with his ring meant one thing. If he did another gesture, it meant something else. But also the three-dimensionality of politicians, like I have this page, which is the biggest, most popular political page on the period on Instagram. Now, you know what's fascinating? My followership, I mean, I'm talking about 60,000 followers. It's it's tiny on in, for global standards, but it's pretty big for Italy and for such a boring period almost. You know what my followers are, most of them? During the early 20s. Now, I thought if anyone would even follow it, it would be, you know, nostalgics, you know, 30 plus. Like I lived the very last years of the First Republic. No, it's 20 year olds. So at one point I started asking them and mind you, it's an anonymous page. No one knows it's, I handle it. I create it because I don't want that whole me, me, me. And it gives me the freedom to do whatever I want and post what I want. And I started asking them in polls, why do you, you're barely 20. Why do you follow me? Why do you like these posts so much? And this goes, the answers kind of confirm what I suspected. We, we talked about this before, about this lie that they're telling us that people are mostly not stupid and ignorant, but lazy. No, they're not. Give them a long format podcast, on, they will listen to it. Give them history, they will read it. So these kids, these young kids answered me, well, you know, I was trying to make sense of the sheer banality of modern politics, this protagonism. It's not anymore a party. It's just the leader who lasts a few months or a year and a party that follows him. It's, you know, before it used to be the other way around. The party was the protagonist and out of the party came a few protagonists. And so these kids were saying, "We want, I just want to know how we came to all this. So I started going back in history. And then I saw a post of yours, and then two, and then I saw a video on YouTube. There's a, a one-hour video of Francesco Cossiga as um, president of the Republic. He chats for an hour about the tra the concept of transubstantiation. Oh, I can't even say it in English. It's so called La transubstantiazione of the soul. Because they were all, you know, believers as well. No one could even say a word of it today. When Bettino Craxi this, um, does the famous or infamous, depending on where you stand, uh, speech in parliament 
basically saying to Parliament, listen, yes, I stole, but we all stole. We all took bribes. So the, the verbosity, the eloquence, the style, the way he said, the dignity. I don't want to sound like an apologist of these criminal activities, but one thing we all agree on, whether you like the First Republic, the old way of doing politics or not, but they were men. They had their beliefs, and God damn it, they read and they were cultured and they wrote. There's one politician, he's hilarious, Gianni De Michelis. He lived like a crown prince with our tax money. He stole, no question about it. And he did epic parties in Venice and he hired castles. His most, his biggest a contribution to Italian culture is a best selling book called. Where shall we go dance tonight? A guide to 250 nightclubs in Italy. He was a, okay. But you know what? Even Andreotti admitted. And Andreotti was furious because that was the new generation of politician. And he always came late to the early meetings in the morning of government. And he said, yes, he, he might have been party until two hours prior. But the culture he has, the eloquence, like he was always on spot. He was the Minister for Foreign Affairs in Andreotti's government. So what I'm trying to get at is, of all the very public vices and very private virtues, one of them was they were men of another era who, who, who knew what they were talking about in politics, in, uh, in foreign affairs. Uh, Bettino Craxi might have had a characterial flaws by God when he starts talking about the history of Italy. Garibaldi he was very passionate about Garibaldi. He, he was like listening to a university lecture and he was cunning. Yes, but he was also astute and he knew that, you know, we live in a real world and we need to make the best of what we have. So nowadays it's just, you become a politician and then a ghost writer writes your book where he explains to you your ideas, basically. Um, you know, there's not an iota of depth. It's just get me as many votes. I, I shall try to get as many votes as I can in one election and then try to survive. And we have astute and cunning and intelligent politicians. Like there's a politician called Matteo Renzi, who was very promising. He won by a landslide, uh, and he's a Democrat, like a, the, 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 what you would call a Democrat. Um, and he promised also, and he was good. He's he's good, a good politician, cunning, but his ego destroyed him. It was all about himself. And he went in history, in Italian politics, as a rising and falling star, he went from 40% of the electorate to he's at now at 2%. In, the, in a matter of years, because it was never about the bigger picture, but always about himself. And it's a shame because he would he, 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 he could have done good to the country. We need politicians that are the street wise, I would say, the politics wise. But unfortunately, we live in a day and age where it's just about the TikTok video and how many likes I get. And, and I think um, polls ruin politics. Back in the day, no one gave a crap about polls. It's just Christian democracy will win. We don't care. We gonna worst case we'll put another prime minister to the same hydra faith. But no one cared about polls because polls are they don't mean anything. You you can't rule by polls. It's just people guts. You need to have the bigger picture. 
Alcide de Gasperi, quoting an American author whose name escapes me, used to say, politicians can't look for the, to the next election. They have to look to the next generation. Now, this implies you have to do unpopular things that will, you know, be good, do good, maybe in one or two generations' time. Nowadays, the politicians, they don't even look at the polls anymore, which was bad enough. They look at the daily likes and they do policies according to the likes of a goddamn TikTok thing, whatever it's called. And, and that's why you can see the, 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 the sorry, going on a tangent here, but, but that's how you see politic democracy is in, in, at, at risk exactly for this reason. Our obsession with being liked and being approval rate, constantly being reassured, that, that's what's missing today. And that's why the movie was a massive success. Guess with who? With what demographics? With the youngsters. Because, okay, Paolo, uh, Paolo Santino was a genius in making him rock and roll, and the soundtrack, although we could do an entire uh, episode on the soundtrack, but, you know, let's think about it for a second. A, a great politician of, you know, 30 years ago was exciting, and my tiny little page is exciting to 20-year-olds because I think they appeal to an... Um, an unconscious desire, a craving that we all have, that and they're, they're trying to kill it in us, which is the love for characters in general, whether good or bad. I'm not saying, but we miss charisma. These people, god damn it, they they had charisma up the kazoo. Um the mafia had more charisma, the, 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 the Freemasons conspiring against Italy had more charisma. We have so many plots uncovered, but you know, uh, even even um, capitalist figures, Raul Gardini or Gianni Agnelli in, in a different way, or Enrico Cuccia, a banker, the greatest banker you can imagine, just this hunchback. But they they exhumed charisma and, and cunning. And so again, it goes back to I'd rather have an honest pardon me, the expression, an honest mafioso, an honest corrupt politician, an honest Freemason, but the bad side, because there's, I'm sure there's decent people there. But I'd rather face them, open face, than this gray bureaucracy of faceless people up in Brussels or Congress or God knows where that are just there to represent lobbying interests. And we, they're very hard to get rid of because... It's a group of people. It's an institution. They're faceless. They, they 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 don't represent the people anymore. One of the great tragedies of the end of the First Republic is we changed our voting system. Before, the politician was voted by the electorate that actually knew him from his, his territory. Then the system changed and the party started to decide who will become a candidate, which brings a distance. There's no real connection anymore between who gets to parliament and who doesn't. I don't know my own regional or even local politician. The only one we, we are allowed to vote ourselves is actually the mayor of the city. Ooh, thank you. And it gets worse once you get to the Eurosphere. I don't know who my politician representatives are in the, in the European parliament. So, Julian Drotti, you mentioned before a very interesting true episode. He did a lot of private charity. It wasn't flashy. There was no 
press. He physically donated and helped and gave money to all of his uh, constituents and vice versa. They brought him gifts, uh, a lamb or a rabbit. And this went on throughout his career. He didn't publicize it. He just did it. And Giulio Andreotti, pe people don't realize this, even in Italy, to this day, I think he still he still beats Berlusconi for sing private uh, preferences, single-handed. He had 600,000 people writing his name on a piece of paper. No one ever beat that record of, uh, of votes. What politicians can say this today? That's in the, the exact uh, uh, series of contrasts uh, we need to, to to leave our listeners with, to conclude with, that uh, politicians were connected to their electorate, they were connected to the region, the territory, and now they are not. They are uh, creatures of abstract systems of voting and uh, fairly abstract bureaucracies of parties, since there's not much rule, really, even in the parties. And... Uh, Politicians in, in the past had a reputation, and now we have uh, vaguely televised or social media fantasies instead that have no lasting power, but uh, they do have a power to distract us instead. It's uh, it's indeed the case that uh, people want more than that. This was a very successful movie everywhere. It won the jury prize in Cannes. It won uh, an award in uh, the, the Venice Film Festival as well. And uh, it's... The best political movie in Italy in the 21st century. Uh, there are, of course, many others that should be made, but uh, people were not sufficiently inspired in a way people don't yet realize what sometimes the younger people realize, is, as you were saying about your First Republic page, that uh, they are interested in a situation where a man matters. We are not just interchangeable with any number of other students, any number of other workers, any number of other whatever it is that people aggregate as. If people are aggregated as likes on TikTok posts, they are replaceable numbers. They are a mere nothing. That's nihilism technologically uh, arranged. Uh, but these men mattered, and therefore Italy mattered, and therefore the people who were for and the people who were against them mattered. And uh, that importance is irreplaceable. Uh, better to have good and evil people than to have nobody who's really human. All the humanism you can ever have in politics and in literature is that people confront each other about their characters, their circumstances, their decisions, and the consequences. That's all the judgment there is that we can have and uh, by which we can orient ourselves, and therefore we can matter. Uh, it, it's strange that uh, Sorrentino has to do this in a movie because people don't do it in politics anymore. It's almost like showing uh, Italians and the world a lost world or an almost lost world, a world we're, we're, we're uh, in danger of losing co contact with. And hopefully people will watch the movie and think about what we're saying and uh, think about the uh, all the drama that plays out in similar ways in America and in other countries as well, where it seems like nobody's really matters. Nobody's really running anything. Nobody that the public can know and hold to account is real. Everything is a televised, uh, mediatized spectacle instead. So uh, that, you would say, is the political drama of our time at the democratic level. As you were saying, uh, does democracy even matter? Well, if for, for it to matter, we would have to have these people by whom we judge what the democracy is doing and which way it's going. Uh, who do you trust? Who will lead the democracy? We need these kinds of people. And uh, it, as I said, strange to have to turn to poetry, to storytelling, to cinema, 
learn this again. But on the other hand, uh, great that uh, there are uh, storytellers, uh, poets, uh, filmmakers like Paolo Sorrentino still doing this essential public service. Uh, you know, uh, kudos to you, congratulations for your uh, Instagram page and letting young people know what it was like when Italy had met. That's a very good thing as well. I don't know what happened. I just touched on a nerve that that that, that worked out because it, it used to be my private archive. I was passionate privately about these things. So I just started posting for myself quotes and pictures of the era and then it exploded. And just to leave you with an anecdote, a few months ago, uh, this year was the 10th year of the death of uh, Giulio Andreotti. So they asked me to do an event to in, in, in the Italian parliament uh, to discuss uh, to discuss him and his memory and who he was. But uh, and, 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 um, but I insisted, yes, let's do it. I will come, but let's do it for the young people. And he said to me, no, no, no. I mean, the, 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 the bureaucracy of the parliament notes will not work out. We can't have this family members as well. We can't, you know, we can't risk it to be like a flop. Said, trust me, believe me, we will jam pad. And um, you know, long story short, we had we couldn't let enough people in. There was not enough room in Parliament in the biggest hall of all to let all the young kids in that were eager to know, not really about Julian Drotti himself as well, but the, the period, the zeitgeist of the era. And it was so refreshing to see all these young kids wanting to exchange a few words and meeting, you know, because there's still members of the old guard alive, uh, the, the the right hand. You'll see him in the movie, Paolo Cirino Pomicino, who I know quite well. He was there very kind with his time. And, you know, just seeing the hunger for just knowledge in general, historical knowledge, political knowledge of these kids was amazing. And in modern times, Look looks what's happening with this American campaign. You know, legacy media is done. Those 20-second tidbits don't convince anyone. Look who's going well. Anyone who goes to podcasts, Joe Rogan and Bill Maher and, and, and Jordan Peterson, you know, they're great. Even if I don't agree with their ideas or, or, or of the host or the guest, it's just fascinating to listen to. So, okay, this is interesting. And this is not interesting, but still valuable. And then you form your opinion. And you've got three hours to do it. And that's what it used to be. We're basically going back. Pre-television, pre when the politicians had to meet the people. Now we do it on podcast and YouTube. Okay, but it's still meeting the people. And you just talk for an hour, two hours, three hours without the... the, the, the the harassment of time and, uh, and, 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 and sound bites. No. So yeah, uh, I couldn't be happier that we're in some way going back to slower time where we took our time to reflect on things and ideas and ponder them. And even if I disagree with you, there's always something valuable we can learn from each other and you know, let the best uh, win, honestly, by the strength of their ideas, not because some spin doctor lobbies corporation is behind me and but this is a conversation for a whole new episode of something we can very glad to talk about. It is such a pleasure to talk to you again.
Likewise, Sebastian, thank you very much for joining me and for uh, doing yet another Sorrentino conversation. We have to uh, raise the alarm, uh, get people to watch Sorrentino movies. So every time we do one of these conversations, I hear from my American friends, they even find it difficult to find the movies themselves to watch, but they are very interested. It's even a infrastructure business problem. People don't import enough Sorrentino movies. We have to solve this. So we're contributing to this. Now talk to Paolo himself to solve this problem. So uh, we're all looking forward to the new Sorrentino movie. And uh, how about we do for our next podcast, uh, his most shocking offering, The Young Pope. That should be uh, of even more interest to our American audience. It's an HBO series about an American pope. What could be, uh, you know, uh, newer and in a sense older, uh, more church-like that is. So let's make that our next conversation, Sebastian. I'm, I'm sounding like a broken record, but it's my favorite series. Everything is my favorite about Paolo. It's it's great. <laughs> I hope you 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 have a few hours because so much to delve into. All right, uh, we'll do that next, and all the best until then, Sebastian. Take care. Ciao.